Welcome to Nonprofit Thursdays, where we educate, elevate, engage, and encourage nonprofit organizations and the people who love them. Today's topic is what about the children? And what about them? What about children in distressed communities, those who are marginalized and often forgotten? So today we're going to talk with a nonprofit leader who has just done an incredible job in doing the work of getting to systemic reasons why we have distressed communities and what can be done about it on many levels. His name is George Caldoun. He studied at the London School of Economics and Columbia Business School. He has an impressive list of credentials. Welcome, George. So let's start off, George, with talking about this, this topic. What about the children? And I, I just feel it so deeply in my heart that um, marginalized kids in uh, distressed communities are not being serviced as they need to. The proper attention is not being given to them. But you were part of a wonderful social experiment that made a difference here. So I want to hear all about the Harlem Children's Zone, how it got started, and what your proudest accomplishments are. Well, um, it really started uh, when I was in, growing up in New York, we would, I went to college in, in 1968, along with uh, Jeffrey Canada, who was there, who came a year after me, and Kenneth Chenault, uh, who came the same year. And during that time, there was a lot of upheavals in the city uh, and cities across the country. Martin Luther King had been killed. Bobby Kennedy had been killed. And there was a lot of rioting and pillaging in our cities, people uh, demonstrating for justice. So we went to college. In our minds, it was basically we were thinking about how or what are we going to do with this education when we graduate? And we decided that we were going to dedicate ourselves to learning as much as possible and developing the skills that would be necessary so that we could go back to our communities and be and add something to those communities that were positive. That is so, so admirable. That was our mindset. That was our mindset. Mm -hmm. And a very important one because so many people go to school so that they can make a lot of money. But you wanted to make a lot of difference, which meant a lot. A absolutely. And so, you know, so we studied really hard and we made sure that we did the best we could in, in college because we knew that later on we would need this knowledge in order to uplift our people at, in the inner cities. So uh, we came back, um, of course, you know, life takes over to, to a lot degree. You got married and you start having children. And I moved away to Bermuda for a while where I was teaching at a college down there and came back to New York uh, and went to Columbia University's Teachers College. And one day I was just finishing up uh, the year and I was graduating in two weeks and I happened to run into Jeff Canada. And he was driving, he was in his car, he stopped me uh, and he, he called me first. He said, hey, 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 stop. Uh, hey, I want to talk to you. And I just kept going, I didn't realize who it was. And my nickname was George X. 
So he says, George X, once he said that, I stopped. I said, okay, this is somebody who knows me. And uh, he said he had just taken over this organization and he's getting ready. He wants to launch a program that addresses the needs of our children in Harlem. And I told him, I'm, I'm down. That's what I said to him, I'm down. So I graduated, I mean, I got my degree and we began working in terms of developing strategies on how to improve the quality of life for the children of Harlem. And one of the things that impresses me so much is that you looked at systemic pieces of the reasons why things took place and not just a superficial way of looking at uh, uh, social problems with regard to distressed communities. So how did you get to, and I really want to hear the story about the kids with asthma and the impact that that had on them going to school. One of the things that we decided after about two years working with him is that we weren't making any real progress. We were working with maybe a thousand kids and the kids and young people in Harlem were going to jail by the thousands. And he said, and we said, look, we got to develop strategies and programs that address children by the thousands instead of having them go off to jail by the thousands. And in New York, uh, it was costing the city $16,000 a year to imprison kids. And we're saying that we could do that, help children much with much less than that. And so that so, 16,000 was per child, per yeah, kid? Yes, in wow. mm -hmm. New York City. Mm -hmm. So we, so we came up with a plan. He said, "Look, we got to develop. We got to develop a plan that addresses kids from from newborn straight on to to high school and maybe on to college." And so we went about developing a strategy. We said, "We got to deal with all the issues of our kids. It's not just one thing hurting kids in our community. It's a number of things, you know. And it starts with we." Housing was a problem. Uh, low weight, birth weight for our kids was a problem. Uh, asthma was a problem for our young people. So we looked at all these uh, different problems that we were having and we developed a strategy uh, and, and a concept of how we would deal with that. So, so George, in, in a sense, when you identify all of these problems, it's sort of like boiling the ocean. How did you begin to hone in to be very strategic about addressing them? We had a number of meetings with our internal staff and we said, look, let's develop a program that goes from K all the way through, through high school and eventually on to college. So we sat down and developed a, uh, a strategy and a program that would address those issues. And, and we developed our own RFP. And what happens is what we did was different from other organizations. Normally foundations and government people tell you what they want to do. They give you their RFP. We said, we're going to develop our own RFP. And once we developed that, we shopped it around to a number of different uh, foundations and they all said, no, we don't want to do it. It's too big, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The numbers don't match. So we went, to one, we went to one person, George Searles, and, and, and George Searles looked at the numbers. He said, Jeff, these numbers add up. I'm going to give you a million dollars. 
Sometimes and that's all it takes is for one person to get it, one right? One person to do it. And then we had one other foundation said, we'll give 250000 And then that's what got the ball rolling. We had one person who said, we believe in you, and we're going to see that this happens. It's different. It's not what other organizations are doing. You're really attacking this thing at its roots. And our issue was... Things that we wanted to do, we wanted to eliminate generational poverty. And we felt that one of the ways you eliminate generational poverty is through education, not only for the children, but also for the parents. And so we set up classes for parents. Uh, we uh, developed a pre K program. Uh, we, we started what we call a baby college. And the baby college was designed to give new mothers who were pregnant or uh, who had children up to three years old, teach them the importance of not screaming, yelling, and beating their kids, but reading to them every night, uh, playing with them, and singing to them. Uh, and that way you develop, they help develop their intellect and their emotional stability. Let's and rest then, on that. Let's rest on that uh, baby college for just a minute, because I love that concept. Because we know that systemically for us, for African-Americans as a people, we emulated the discipline that was shown to us during slavery. And that was pretty brutal. And some of that had definitely reverberated into our communities. So what kind of conversations did you have as you were putting this baby college together? One of the things we, we said, we wanted to talk to also experts. So we brought in a couple experts to gave us uh, some insights on, on how, how the baby's brains develop and the importance of playing, singing, reading to your children early on. And having that discussion with them, uh, we designed the program. Number one, the baby college, we had parents who would come for seven weeks, seven Saturdays, where we would give them that information. We would give them lunch and we would uh, help them if there's some issues in terms of uh, transportation, we helped them with that. And, and then we uh, said, we have to start this baby college. I mean, this baby college, I mean, to extend it, pre uh, preschool, preschool, right after baby college, they go to preschool. And then preschool, uh, we taught them in three languages, English, Spanish, and French. Three languages. That, yes, because we saw that Black kids in Harlem were starting school, kindergarten, already three years behind. And so we said we wanted to attack this problem early on, and we began to teach them in three languages, and then we would test them uh, every six months to see how they were uh, developing emotionally and intellectually. So that was one of our issues. And so from that time, for the last 20, 25 years or so, all of our kids have started kindergarten on grade level. So that was a real big deal to us to begin early working with our young people. That's, in, I, I, I just, it gives me chills to hear about this kind of thinking. And you mentioned the thought partners that you had, the experts that came in to help you think these things through, which was so very, very smart and important. I want to hear the story about asthma and truancy and how you dealt with it with what about the children? 
Okay. Um, well, we also have, we have two charter schools, but we also work with seven schools in Harlem in their after-school programs. And there, there was an issue uh, in New York and Harlem in particular, is that kids were not going to school because they, they were having asthma attacks. And so one of the things we did, we linked up with the Melman School at Columbia University and Harlem Hospital because they had, they, they had issues around it. They were concerned about the number of children in Harlem who, had, who were having asthma and subsequently missing school days. And many of them were failing in the third, fourth, and fifth grade because they, because they had asthma attacks. So those concerns concerned um, Harlem Hospital and Melman School of Medicine at Columbia University. They were concerned about this also. And so we got together and had a long conversation about how we were going to attack this problem. And so one of the things we did uh, in terms of working with the schools, uh, third to the sixth grade, we were, I mean, kindergarten through six, we were, had the schools give us all the kids, give the names of all the kids who had asthma or were missing days because of asthma. And we met with them, we got the schools were very cooperative because they wanted their kids to go to school, they wanted kids to pass. And, and Columbia University, they had a lot of federal grants that addressed some of those issues. So we met and we developed a program where, um, number one, we were able to list all the kids who had it. Uh, we met with all the parents uh, and we developed uh, the funding that would allow us to go into the homes because many of the uh, asthma was developed because of rodents in the house and the cleanliness of the house. So the parents allowed us to come in uh, with exterminators, et cetera, et cetera, uh, to help uh, in terms of eliminating the, rot, the venom that was in their homes. And also we had weekly meetings uh, with most of the parents who, who totally agreed and the landlords of those buildings. And so over a period of about a year and a half, we had the, the whole question of kids not going to school because of asthma attacks went way down. The attendance in the schools went way up. So that's how we were able to do it, but it was a collaboration with the medical team, the educational team, and the Harlem, and the Harlem Hospital that allowed us to really address and attack that problem. Yes, these, these partnerships are so important. And I think it's, it really is so important for nonprofit organizations to understand that they don't have to do it alone Absolutely. and that they shouldn't do it alone in order to get to the root of this. Who would have thought that you would connect truancy, lack of going to school, which some people would have assumed, oh, the parents don't care, yeah. with the fact that there were rodents in where these kids lived. And as a result, that needed to be getting, uh, addressed and uh, taken care of, the vermin needed to be taken care of in order to get these kids to a, a place and these children to a place of learning. That's, that's just so excellent. Who has recognized what you have done there in the Harlem Children's uh, Zone? One of the things, Promise Neighborhoods, uh, which when uh, President Obama was in office, he started this program called Promise Neighborhoods. 
where you go into the different cities and you put aside of millions of dollars for different cities to apply for and uh, to develop a program similar to the Harlem Children's Zone that worked with children from early on straight through the college and, uh, or high school. And so he, and a number of cities, he, a number of cities have applied for those grants and, and some of those cities received some of those grants to begin to address uh, the, the issues uh, confronting black people and in, in our communities. So Promise Neighborhoods came, and that was funny, actually, because uh, when Obama was running, he called uh, called us up and said that he wanted to use our, our platform because he read something about it in the New York Times. And we didn't know who this guy was. And Hillary's office and uh, Bill's office is right down the street from us. And we had a fairly good relationship with them. Well, when you say Hillary and Bill, we're supposed to assume that's the Clintons? Yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Their office is right on 125th Street, about maybe two blocks away. And we had a relationship with them. So uh, at first, we just kind of, who's this guy, Obama? No. And so we didn't give him. We didn't, we didn't reach back out to him. And, um, but he did it anyway. You know, he, 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 didn't, he asked permission. We didn't give it to him. He did it anyway. And so once he got elected, we start putting together policy papers and sending it to his people, uh, describing how we developed the Harlem Children's Zone and how they can perhaps do this around the country. And that's when he developed Promise Neighborhoods. Promise Neighborhoods. And was that successful? How, what kind of grade would you give that initiative? I'm not sure because it's, it was in a number of cities. Uh, I mean, the grants went out to a number of cities and it's still in progress. You know, he's still uh, supporting. I mean, that, uh, the feds did not cut that program, surprisingly. And, and a lot of cities are still grappling with and using some of those concepts. So I think the data is still out uh, in terms of uh, its success. Uh, so we'll, we'll see. We have to think. So now uh, Harlem has definitely been gentrified. The last time I visited there, I was totally shocked by the level of gentrification that has taken place. Does that mean there needs to be a Bronx children's zone or another borough where this flight and the, these distressed communities are growing? I, I, we have looked at that really carefully, um, but it's very interesting because most of the schools in Harlem are still, number one, some of them are overflowing and most of them are black kids in those schools. So we're still working with the children uh, in those schools in Harlem. So the gentrification has not really, um, uh, it's not really a major problem at this point because a lot of, there's a lot of public housing in Harlem and that's where the bulk of our people live. Mm -hmm. Still and, today. Yes, still today. The, the housing project, I mean, you've got a, five or six, maybe 10 housing projects in Harlem and that's where our people are. And so our, our charter schools are still full of, of, of our kids and the public schools still have a lot of our kids. So we still have these issues that we are struggling with around making sure our children graduate from high school and go on to college or a career 
And so we're still struggling with that. And, and so there's still a need. So that's where we are focused um, at this point. However, um, of late, uh, there's been a, uh, a really a push around the country to address the uh, issue of COVID disease. Uh, and what we're trying to do and what we have just received is a grant to go into six cities uh, to address the whole issue around uh, uh, computer or uh, connectivity. Uh, a lot of people don't have computers. Uh, the whole question of mental health, the whole question of uh, parents not having enough money or support. Okay. We're gonna deal with that. Also, we're gonna put computers in, in their homes. Uh, we're gonna provide social workers uh, for the homes. And also we're gonna give, uh, if there's a question of finance or money, we're gonna try to support some of those issues. That's so that's still phenomenal. on the drawing board. Wow. Hopefully within the next year, we should be able to launch that. And I'm yeah. involved with that as a consultant. And it addresses what about the children once again? Yeah, absolutely. It goes right back to the children because that's our, uh, our bottom line. And that's the future because we feel deeply that we're not going to end generational poverty unless we address the issues confronting our children, uh, uh, helping them to get educated. And we've just raised about maybe $20 million to help kids who are in college to give scholarships for some of those children, uh, young people who are in uh, college and want to go to college. So it's just an ongoing struggle. I want to pivot a little bit to talk about your organizational structure and how you chose your board members and kind of describe for us what that board looked like and what did it do? For our internal organization, uh, we have our, our president, CEO, uh, and then I was the chief operating officer and the chief administrative officer for over 20 years or so. And then we have a, a whole team of, of course, financial people, evaluators, data people, uh, in fact, we were one of the first nonprofits to really uh, use data to drive our outcomes. That was one of the things we did early on. We went out and hired uh, a person with a PhD from Yale's uh, sister who, who we thought would come in and we brought her in to help us collect the data. Because when we had data, that helped us in developing uh, other proposals that we would take to uh, fun funders, because they saw the data, this is way back in the early 90s, they said, oh, these people are really doing something serious, and they would give us more financial support. So the date, so our organization was data-driven in terms of how many kids that we work with, how many kids did we say we were going to work with, and what were those outcomes? Numbers, so that, numbers are powerful, right? Yeah, absolutely. That mm -hmm. was a big part of our organization internally. Um, so we had a board, uh, you know, when I first came on in early, uh, early nine, late, late 80s, early 90s, uh, we had a board, but they were more or less, um, they would give advice, right? But no money and support, and we needed money. And so one of the things, uh, Jeff and I went to Bowdoin College, and there was a lot of people, uh, a lot of white people that we knew from, from Bowdoin who 
were working on Wall Street and was doing very well on Wall Street. And one of our one of our colleagues uh, who was at Bowdoin, uh, Stan Dreckermiller, uh, was running his own hedge fund. And so he joined our board and eventually he became the president of our board. And he said to us, look, I got to bring people on the board who can raise money. And so we reshaped our board and brought on people who were interested, not so much in the internal dynamics of, of the Harlem Children's Home, but they wanted to see were we making progress. And long as we were, long as they saw that we were making progress, they didn't get into the internal organizational structure uh, of the Harlem Children's Zone or how you actually run things. Long as you were producing in terms of working, if you said you were going to work with 80 kids and, and year one, they wanted to make sure that we work with those 80 kids. So they were more, they were making us accountable more than getting into the internal um organizational processes. I like that because boards should not micromanage, as you talked about, and also uh, definitely make sure that the accountabilities and the metrics are met. That's a pretty simple process, but then getting to the fundraising, it's really about having those people on the board that can actually step up and do that. So what did you do with the other board members who had been there for a while and advising? Well, well, we quietly asked them, you know, Jeff would say, look, we got to raise $20 million this year. How can you help us? And those board members who couldn't design. Mm -hmm. That's basically what happened. And then we were able to bring on board members who could help us. Yes. That was a big part of it. Yes. We would ask them politely, look, here's our budget. You see what we want to do. We want to work with 10,000 kids by year four. Can you help us? Because we're going to need a million every year to do that. And And most of them said, I'm sorry, you know, I enjoyed working with you, but we can't do it. I I can't, I have to resign. And that that was so honest and and, uh, realistic. And at the same time, the way you part ways with a board member is so important, isn't it? Because they may know other people that have resources that can help. So you don't want to make unnecessary enemies, right? Absolutely. You're absolutely correct. So that's how we we, we shaped our board in order to um, get the financing that we need in order to expand. Because we, because when we did that, we were working with about maybe four or five thousand kids. We were telling them, "Look, we want to work with ten thousand kids within the next four years or five years, and we this is the amount of money we're going to need to work with those ten thousand kids." You know, so once we got the money, I mean, once we got a new board and got the finances to support those two thousand kids, it was up to me to make sure that the plan worked. Right, because we had a, our business plan was about maybe 100, 200 uh, pages. And we said each year we wanted to work with X amount of kids. You know, by year five, we want to be working with uh, 4,000 kids. So on and on. So we developed programs uh, that would address uh, those issues in terms of developing programs that young people would be interested in. And with ramping up in that way, George, uh, through your business plan or strategic plan, 
how was the infrastructure with employees? How did you deal with that? And I wanted to hear a little bit about your philosophy in managing uh, employees in an operation as big and as impactful as the Harlem Children's Zone. One of the things that uh, we had that was very interesting is that Jeff had what we call, and we had what we call uh, whistleblower's law, meaning that if any director or staff member was doing anything inappropriate, you had a right to report that person. And if that person uh, retaliated, that person was fired. So we were real clear that we wanted to have uh, an organization that was morally strong also and not exploitive. And if we found out that someone was exploiting someone else because of their position or whatever, uh, that person was let go. Uh, we were very clear on that. So every year we would have our Christmas parties or holiday parties and Jeff would say, these are the rules, y'all, because everybody was there. Every year he would say, I said, Jeff, why do you say the same thing every year? He said, you know how people forget. They do what they want to do. I said, we said no exploitation. And then if you're, uh, if you have, if a guy, a man or woman is having somebody who's in charge of their department is having a relationship with that person, that person could not work in that department. Mm. That person would have to work in another department. Uh, and that was and that was and that was the rule. So we had those kind of moral codes in place. And and if there was violations, people were fired. I mean, and, and it was just no, we were real clear about that. I uh, love hearing people. about this. I love hearing about the moral direction that you were setting from the top so that it would trickle down to the work that you were doing, because how can you teach children how to be uh, moral and to have higher standards in their lives if the organization itself was not modeling that. So I, I think that was really, really excellent. So we're about to wind down, George. This has been a wonderful conversation. I, you were about to say something and I didn't want to. No, that, that's all right. I just want to say, and, and it had to be implemented. You know, it couldn't just be words. So when things came up, I mean, me being the chief operating officer, I got a lot of stuff who would come to me. I would bring the person in, I would bring a witness in, and we would have a conversation about it. And if it was true, that person would be let go. So mm -hmm. we were very clear about that. Very, very serious about the work that you've done. Absolutely. So as we're winding down here, I have a, a habit of asking a question from Inside the Actor's Studio, which was a show that I loved. And I have a question for you. What makes you smile? Oh boy, you know, I, I smile because it's a couple of things. Number one, I feel that the work I'm doing is motivated by God. I smile because we have a uh, thousand kids, no, 950 kids in college. And, and so far we have graduated 830 kids from college. And those kids are doing well. So the fact that we have achieved or are achieving much of our goals in terms of helping to eliminate generational poverty so that we can lift up our communities, that makes me smile. Uh, thank you so much, George Caldoun, 
What about the children? You've addressed that question so very, very well through your life's work. So thank you for being here on Nonprofit Thursdays and all the best in all that you do. It's been, a pro- it's been really great being here and I'm so happy to be sharing with you and your audience. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much, George Caldoun, for your commitment, for your wisdom, and for bringing this impactful service and organization to the attention of the American public. Thank you again. We'll see you next time on Nonprofit Thursdays.